Hello and welcome to another episode of Afghan Affairs Podcast. This is Sabal Brahimi. Today we're going to be discussing the role of Pakistan in Afghanistan's affairs, specifically its role in the peace process. Now to discuss this timely topic, I have the honor to be speaking to Dr. Christine Fair. Dr. Fair is a professor of security studies at Georgetown University. She has previously served as a political scientist with the Rand Corporation, as a political officer with the United Nations Assistance Mission to Afghanistan, as a senior research associate at USAIP's Center for Conflict Analysis and Prevention, Dr. Fair's research focuses on political and military affairs in South Asia that includes Afghanistan, Pakistan, India, Bangladesh, and Sri Lanka. She has published a number of books and a number of research papers. Without further ado, I invite you to this conversation with Professor Fair. And I hope that it will be an opportunity for us to learn about Afghanistan and Pakistan and also about the U.S. policy towards these two countries. We start with the basic question uh, that is, what is Pakistan's role in Afghanistan's uh, peace process? I mean, it's complicated in the sense that the process itself is a misnomer. In my view, it's not truly a peace process. more akin to a political process, right? Because no one has a shared vision of what the end state should look like. So I don't think it's fair to call this a peace process. Um, And of course, it's a nested process. You have, or you have had the United States engaging directly with the Taliban in a way that personally I think is quite shameful in the sense that um, the Taliban have made a number of demands upon the Afghan government. The U.S. government, by which I mean the Trump administration, has bullied President Ghani into acceding to those demands. Uh, And they've done so, for example, by threatening to cut off financial assistance. That was how, for example, Pompeo was able to force President Ghani into releasing the 5,000 Taliban prisoners without condition. And many of those individuals have uh, returned to violence. And at the level of the intra-Afghan discussions, the two sides don't really view the other as legitimate. The Afghan government. rightfully so, doesn't think that it should have to um, give way to a transition government to appease a party that refuses to contest elections and has largely bullied its way through mass violence, including murder, to get a seat at the table. And then, of course, the Afghan Taliban do not recognize the Afghan government as legitimate um, for a variety of reasons, not the least of which they view it as a puppet. So you have Pakistan playing a very clear role in different ways at these different levels. So the Pakistanis, from President Trump's point of view, play a key role in bringing the Taliban to the table. 
And so even though Trump has given Pakistan um, comparatively more grief than the previous Obama or Bush administrations, and he even cut off the very lucrative coalition support funds, he actually is giving Pakistan the prize, right? Which is basically handing the Afghans back over uh, to the Pakistanis, just as the United States did in the 1990s. And then at the level of the intra-Afghan discussions, Pakistan continues to play a role by continuing to provide all manner of resources to the Taliban, such that they will continue fighting while claiming to be negotiating. So Pakistan uh, is in every way, shape, or form a bad faith actor here. Do you think that Pakistan sees Afghanistan as the only leverage uh, against the United States or even against uh, India? Its relationship with India is one of unremitting security competition with India. India, left to its own devices, would probably be indifferent to Pakistan if it were not committed to dispatching terrorists in Indian-administered Kashmir and elsewhere, right? India is, and now we can have a, a more nuanced discussion about, for example, Amit Shah. Amit Shah is not, um, I would say, the median Indian political actor of consequence. With very few exceptions, Indians have been satisfied with the territorial status quo. It's really with the BJP, particularly in its second term this time around under Modi, that we've seen people of consequence and significance arguing that India should exert its sovereignty over all of Kashmir. And of course, some of these comments have been quite recent, promoted and prompted by Pakistan's announcement that Gilgit Baltistan is going to become a province, which in itself is a response to India's revocation of Kashmir's special status through Article 370, right? So what Pakistan has always said is that um, India is engaging in nefarious activities with and through Afghanistan. So Pakistan would use Afghanistan as an excuse, for example, um, for the Americans to not engage with India, right? So if you follow Pakistani media, as I'm sure you do, um, we of course saw this in the so-called dossier that Imran Khan presented uh, to the world. Uh, the belief that terrorism in Pakistan is supported by India from Afghanistan uh, I remember watching talk shows after the atrocity at the Army Public School in Peshawar. They said that this was a uh, an Afghanistan sehokar Bharatiya sazish, you know, an Indian conspiracy through Afghanistan. And as you know, you know, Pakistan continues to make these claims about the whatever number of consulates there are, uh, in spite of well-known truths to the contrary. So. The reality is, though, that Pakistan has issues with Afghanistan that have nothing to do with India, right? But 
one of the goals that Pakistan has always sought with respect to Afghanistan is an Afghanistan that is inhospitable to India. And for reasons that are historical, well-known and obvious, the Afghan antipathy towards Pakistan is clear. It's not going anywhere. And generally speaking, Afghans are much more receptive to India than, than to Pakistan. So a stable Afghanistan that is friendly to India is always going to be seen as a threat to Pakistan. And Pakistan would consequently always prefer a chaos, a murderous chaos in Afghanistan than a stable Afghanistan that's friendly to India. Because Pakistan feels as if, uh, or I don't say you know, Pakistan as a country, Pakistan's security elites and the army and the ISI feel more com comfortable and competent managing a brutal chaos in Afghanistan than a truly stable Afghanistan with robust ties to India. Well, that's that's a very dark outlook uh, for Afghanistan, I would say. But I mean, uh, do you disagree? I mean, I'm. I mean, if you think I'm like out of my mind, do you just let me know. Uh, I kind of agree with you in a sense that Pakistan, even like uh, Pakistan, says that instability in Afghanistan uh, is instability in Pakistan. You know, we want a peaceful Afghanistan. We want like a an Afghanistan where we could uh, trade with. We could have. We could reach Central Asia. Uh, Pakistan has been saying all these things probably for the last 20 to 40 years. Uh, I can see that, you know, uh, if, if uh, I can see the problem with saying these things and then in reality, really not doing anything to stabilize Afghanistan. Well, and in fact, actively undermining it. Right. I mean, that's what I always say to people. It's like, if you think I'm being overly skeptical, provide me the evidence of Pakistan being Afghanistan's well-wisher or even doing things that, that help stabilize Afghanistan. Look at how Pakistan uses access to the port at Karachi, right? So I, when I, I mean, I'm always willing to re-optimize my assessment, but I don't see the evidence for that. Um, this is also why, I think the Chinese influence in Iran is also very problematic. Um, I was a fan of India developing the port at Chabahar because that would have given, um, and of course that required much more investment, which has really been hollowed out by Trump's evacuation of the JCPOA, but a truly functional and vibrant port at Chabahar under the um, the exemption of the sanctions for Afghan reconstruction is exactly what Afghanistan needs. You know, it needs an economic supply route that is independent of Pakistan um, because Pakistan can't be trusted. Uh, I mean, uh, I don't know if anyone could, could be trusted. Uh, not that I'm, you know, yeah, well, true. <laughs> it's it's like the United States wants to get out. Uh, Indians, exactly. they're looking for their interests and exactly. Iranians right. are looking for their interests. Uh, yeah, exactly. Uh, and obviously there are a lot of internal uh, tensions uh, between Afghan political elite and their, you know, interest groups uh, from uh, corrupt technocrats to 
warlords to extremists and puritans so like they also have internally there are lots and lots of issues right but uh pakistan plays a key role and uh, what, uh, and also I, i see this one theme uh, showing up um over and over which is um india you know in in in, yeah. in pakistan's uh, pakistan in pakistan's uh, statements uh, from the ministry of foreign affairs even from pakistani parliament uh they say oh uh whatever happens in kashmir will have an impact on the peace process <laughs> you know I, I, if you are a genuine neighbor if you why, really why would you link them why would you link them that's my question and, and so my, and now i'm asking you that the question why would pakistan link uh, uh afghanistan's peace process with kashmir It, this is hard to say because the current modi government is quite problematic um in a lot of ways i mean the first modi government he was less adamant about pursuing communal objectives than he has been in this term right the first term he pushed through some really bad ideas such as the demonetization but that didn't have an explicitly communal overtone to it that had a bunch of stuff attached to it but it wasn't as communal as rebuilding the ram temple at ayodhya which meant pressurizing the supreme court to resolve that matter favorably to the government revoking article 370 obviously triple talaq um the citizenship bill and so forth but having said with this notable exception of this government in india really going back to the 1990s uh with india's economic growth many countries including the united states were drawn to india because of opportunities in india opportunity they saw in india a future partner in managing regional security um as well as more extended security concerns in what india would call its extended strategic neighborhood so for example um patrols of the sea lanes of communication uh thinking about um other issues in the global commons right for example climate change um thinking about india as a key partner in the global economic structure right so india has been and i think it still is although it's taken um even though the quality of india's democracy has certainly taken a um, a kicking just as american democracy has but it's still seen as a place of opportunity pakistan garners attraction because it is a place of threat right india beckons with opportunity pakistan intimidates with security threats if you don't do this for me i'm going to um make your life miserable by supporting terrorism if you don't continue giving me money um through the imf program our country might fail our pakistan uh, army might fractionalize um and give nuclear weapons to terrorists right it it basically is a country that extracts resources through threats that's basically pakistan's business model so if you think about ways that um pakistan can create leverage on india when no one cares about the kashmir issue well it can link the kashmir issue to american objectives in afghanistan right so um we are going to extract our pound of flesh 
from the Americans in Afghanistan, hoping that the Americans would then put pressure on the Indians to do something differently in Kashmir, right? That's Pakistan's principal modus operandi for extracting either resources or support for its preferred policies. And Afghanistan, you know, has really become, um, ever since the United States invaded, an opportunity space for Pakistan to play these games. It's interesting. I was reading a report I, by, uh, by by the Heritage Foundation. I think it was from 2008 or 2009. One of the recommendations was exhibit patience with Pakistan. You know, this is oh. 2008 and 2009. Yeah, uh, well, you know, I was a part of that report project and I was the dissenting voice. In fact, when they launched the report at the Hudson Foundation, I gave an extended uh, speech mm. explaining that I did not sign on to these palliative recommendations because Pakistan's behavior was never going to change if we continued that course of appeasement. Uh, and then there was another recommendation, find ways to, I think it was along along the lines of find ways to combat terrorism with Pakistan, you know, a country <laughs> that is, how, how are you going to do that? Like uh, terrorism and extremism, you know, extremism, they use extremism as a, as a foreign policy tool, Absolutely. as you mentioned. Uh, so, but then what you suggest, you know, what should the U.S. do? What should Afghanistan do? What could anyone in Pakistan do? Maybe the Pakistani military, uh, civilian leadership that over the last year we have been saying, oh, let's work with the civilian leadership. So, I mean, my view on this is... Um, pretty straightforward. In 1990, the United States reapplied sanctions to Pakistan that had been waived through the Pressler Amendment. Um, and those original sanctions were put in place in April of 1979, right? The U.S. didn't anticipate working with Afghanistan. The U.S. in April of 79 didn't see what would happen in the ensuing months. So the Pressler Amendment passed in June of 1985 allowed Pakistan to continue getting security assistance even though we knew that um, it was continuing to proliferate. Right? So in 1990, um, we no longer needed to thread this needle required by the Pressler Amendment, which is that the president would assert that Pakistan didn't have a nuclear weapon. Right. Then Pakistan tests in 1998. And I will say a lot of the analysts that I have read completely misunderstand the Pressler Amendment. And very few of them, even people who consider themselves to be experts on Pakistan, didn't know that we first sanctioned Pakistan in April of 79. Right. So many people with a very cursory and I must say factually impoverished understanding of our relationship with Pakistan, we'll say sanctions don't work, right? We sanctioned Pakistan in 1990, and here they tested in 1998. By the time we reimposed sanctions in 1990, Pakistan had already had the bomb. And we know this now from a variety of Pakistani sources. So this misreading of sanctions has given people this mistaken belief that had we not sanctioned Pakistan, maybe 9-11 would not have happened. This actually comes up in the 9-11 Commission report, 
right? So people drew the wrong lessons from those sanction events. So you'll, you do not see any stomach to pursue Pakistan as vigorously as the United States, for example, has pursued Iran. And because I understand the, the fundamental error in reading the history of sanctions, I disagree with the reticence. I think that we should have been all along, rather than cajoling Pakistan and um, telling ourselves that Pakistan had some interests in common with us, that we should have been more coercive rather than persuasive. Uh, all of the people who have argued that we should continue to persuade Pakistan, they've all been proven repeatedly and time and time again to be flawed in their analysis. Right? What Pakistan concludes is that the United States is never serious about its own security commitments. So um, I think that we should have been sanctioning Pakistan. We should have put it on a state sponsor of terrorism list. We should have been willing to work with Iran. Um, people said Iran is a state sponsor of terrorism and a nuclear proliferator. And my response was always, yeah, but so is Pakistan. And it's even more so than Iran could ever aspire to be. So I think from the beginning, I just had a very different set of responses to the problem set. Um, but, you know, my approach to Pakistan, there's just no support for it because people have this fundamentally erroneous understanding of history, but also a fundamentally erroneous reading of Pakistani behavior, right? Everyone wants to continue to say that Pakistan and the U.S. have a shared interest in fighting terrorism. Absolutely not. Pakistan has an interest in using terrorism as a state instrument of, of achieving foreign policy objectives. How can that instrument of, of policy have anything in common with what the United States wants to see in South Asia? Which I was going to actually ask you this question was like, what's the strategic importance of Pakistan to the United States? It is one of foreboding which is the United States primarily wants to prevent nuclear weapons from falling into hands of nefarious actors. And what's fascinating to me is that when the Soviet Union um, was still in existence, you know, a lot of Americans also feared what happens if the Soviet Union breaks, what happens to the so-called loose nukes. Well, we had planned for that and we had created legislation that funded programs that actually prepared for that contingency, the United States, I think, would be behooved to adopt a similar outlook towards Pakistan. Yeah, Pakistan might not be a viable nation state. By the way, I don't think Pakistan ever would break up. But there's value in allowing yourself to think about it, right, so that you're not constantly being blackmailed by this threat that Pakistan itself presents to the world as a bargaining strategy. So we wanna prevent that. Um, obviously the US says it wants to prevent any kind of conflict between India and Pakistan because of the potential for nuclear escalation. But yet, you know, we don't really put pressure on Pakistan to not do the very things that are most likely to precipitate such a conflict, right? Pakistan continues to support terrorist groups that operate primarily against and in India. And then since 9-11, obviously, Pakistan is seen as being a partner, which I find astonishing. Um, 
in operating against an array of Islamist terrorist organizations. And so even the issue of al-Qaeda, which even someone like me would concede that Pakistan has been on net helpful, where was Osama bin Laden found, right? A, a very short distance from the Pakistan Military Academy in Kakul. So, you know, I when Americans recite how important Pakistan is to securing these three large American interests, I always respond, and how has this approach worked for us? <laughs> mm. If this is the if this is the impact of influence, maybe we should try not having influence. Yeah. Right? Because it's been with the American subsidies of the Coalition Support Fund program, for example, that allowed Pakistan to pursue, for example, um, the tactical nuclear weapons program. Right. Money is yeah. fungible. That was basically a, a giant piggy bank, for, a, a halal piggy bank for the Pakistanis that was used to directly undermine our interests. Yeah. And also there are issues about how uh, the war on terror was used to uh, suppress uh, any dissent by of, you know, Pashtuns yes. and, and, and the Baluch. Yeah. Uh, Absolutely. So well, they, I mean, since you raised this, I mean, let's also be clear, the Americans supported Pakistanis' uh, oppression of Pashtuns. I mean, when Musharraf disappeared Baloch, we supported that. Right? We did not at any point oppose that, right? Mm -hmm. um, we were yeah. perfectly happy with Pakistan sending people off to so-called dark sites for interrogation, right? Um, and this was part of the ruse that Pakistan so-called crackdown um, against Baloch and Pashtuns was aiding American interests. Because, mm -hmm. and of course, the poor Baloch and Pashtuns have paid with their lives, right? Because the Pakistanis kill these Pashtuns and Baloch and say, oh, look, they were terrorists. And the Americans rewarded them. And, you know, it took the Pashtuns a while to figure this game out. And now that they figured it out, they're enemy number one. Yeah, and it's sponsored by India and Afghanistan. I mean, that's, I mean, that's what the Pakistanis claim, right? When the Pakistani deep state murders its own citizens, it has this the this massive information operations that says they're just working for the Indians, so they're not really your citizens. You know, they're the mm. Andaruni Dushman. I think a lot of countries are using that those tactics. Uh, anybody who is trying to uh, seek change or you know uh, ask for equal rights, they're labeled as working for foreigners. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, but, but it's used more often in Pakistan uh, against the Pashtuns and Baluch. Yep. Uh, and uh, we see the, this mass movement of uh, Pashtun Tafis movement. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, which is which is amazing and. Uh, over the years, it has been very, very civil and very, very actually peaceful. Right. Yep. Yeah. Uh, so, which yep. would okay. So now, if you narrow it down, so we said, I think you are for more sanctions. You know, being more strict with Pakistan. Absolutely. How, how do you how do you convince Pakistan to do anything with this political process? Or you said you said it's not even a peace process. Like, how can we get Pakistan to do something positive in this regard? Like, uh, Prime Minister Khan was in in. Uh, Kabul in November, and he said, "I'll do whatever I can do to bring the level of violence down in <laughs> Afghanistan." Right, right. Yeah. 
So, uh, but since then, the violence is, uh, well, it's just been a month or so. I'm not saying that in one month, the violence will go away. But they have never pushed for like a ceasefire. Never. Uh, no. I mean, they have, like, there was one statement with the European Union that they have jointly issued like a couple of months ago saying that we support the idea of a ceasefire. Mm-hmm. But then I don't think that they followed up on that on that statement. But also, uh, most recently, when the Taliban delegation was uh, in in Islamabad, Mahmoud Qureshi, the foreign minister, said mm-hmm. that, oh, reduction of violence is the responsibility of everyone. Yeah, right. What a load of crap. Uh, so, I mean, look, on this, you don't get them to do this without sanctions. And what kind of sanctions do you mean? You So... U.S. Treasury Department sanctions are the big one, right? Once their funds are put, and, and I don't mean, I mean specific individuals, right? I would put DGISI's funds under Department of Treasury sanctions. I would, Mahmoud Qureshi, I would stop treating them as part of the solution, right? I mean, I would treat them as they are, which I've long advocated that, they, that they're actually the enemy of the United States. I mean, we can tell ourselves otherwise, um, but it is, it doesn't make it true. It's sort of like, you know, the way President Trump lies about the threat that Putin poses. So um, we have a lot of surveillance mechanisms. Putting people under Department of Treasury sanctions doesn't require judicial evidence. It requires intelligence. And once their money comes under Department of Treasury sanctions, it makes their life incredibly difficult, right? They can't move money around. Um, they can't so easily travel to Europe or use any other bank that works with um, the U.S. banking system, right? Travel restrictions, um, going after people that matter. Um, and, you know, the, the question is, you know, how much do you, do you punish the prime minister? Um, I think in this case, you know, the prime minister has been very, very complicit in Pakistan's strategy. Uh, you know, the army deliberately selected him. He has never been critical of the Taliban. He has never been critical of the petting zoo of terrorists that Pakistan uses um, as tools of foreign policy. So I'm a fan of very targeted sanctions upon individuals for whom we have intelligence that they are supporting these organizations. And then obviously, I have zero tolerance for the American indulgence of the Taliban. We've essentially normalized mass murderers. So, um, and I'm aware that the United States cannot impose its military will upon the Taliban um, for reasons that are long, tedious, but also obvious. Um, But that doesn't mean that we have to hand Afghanistan over to the Taliban. Uh, And I think my biggest concern really uh, has to do with the long-term financial support of Afghanistan. If the U.S. doesn't continue paying for Afghanistan's um, national defense and security forces, I don't know how Afghanistan will be able to continue fighting Pakistan's proxies. So there's also a part of me that thinks that a lot of the real important discussions are overshadowed by the discussions of these so-called negotiations and um, what American troops do or don't do or how many American troops there are in the country. 
Um, because obviously when the United States stops supporting Afghanistan financially, I also expect other um, potential contributors to, to also stop contributing. And I think that's the important issue about the troops. As long as there are troops in the country, the U.S. Congress might feel compelled to keep writing checks when there are no more troops there. I don't, I don't know um, what kind of support there's going to be to continue paying those bills. It's, it's hard to say. The United States sanctions almost everybody in Iran, like all the right. members of cabinets. And, that's right. And that's they, right. So why can't we do that to Pakistan? Exactly. I, I've it's, never it's understood It's so surprising. It. It's like right? a, a I mean, we can, question mark. If the IGRC is a state sponsor of terror, how is the ISI not? Exactly, and they actually have, have sponsored groups that are that have killed what twenty three hundred uh, American forces so far. Oh. Um, well, you know what? That's actually a low number because of all of the American contractors and, and also then, the ones who come back home with PTSD and die. They don't. Of come. course, and the the, the injuries, right? And, and and I don't think that the loss of American life is the most important number. Like you're, you're never going to find me in all of my writings. I never leave it there, right? Because we've also lost our NATO partners in and out of uniform. But most importantly, most importantly, um, hundreds of thousands of Afghans have died, right? Yeah. Afghans, more than anyone else, have died. Afghan men in uniform in numbers that are too sensitive for the government to even report, right? But we know that they are orders of magnitude more than all of the Western coalition numbers summed up and then add a zero to it. They have died for Afghan freedom from the tyranny of Pakistan and the Taliban. And how dare the United States government, how dare the United States government trample on the sacrifices of those Afghans? That to me is the most disgusting aspect of this is that because of our losses, which are a, a minuscule fraction of Afghans' losses, we are willing to toss the Afghans back to the Pakistanis. That does not sit right with me at all. Mm -hmm. And and it's not just that we are withdrawing because we cannot impose our military will. That's that is a fact. Right. That is a fact that we do not have to make President Ghani bend over backwards to accommodate the Taliban. We do not have to treat the Taliban like legitimate actors when they're not legitimate. We don't have to legitimize them as actors. They are murderers. And it's up to the Afghans to figure out what, how and when they are going to have a peace and reconciliation process. But the Americans should not be imposing this upon the Afghans. That's yeah. my concern. This is this is true. This should truly be an intra-Afghan matter. And it's not truly an intra-Afghan yeah. matter if the U.S. is foisting this upon the Afghans at the threat of withdrawing of financial support. The regional act are very important their national actors are important they have been in it you know the united states have been at war like is a party to to the, to this conflict yes. so as a party to the conflict uh, the united states uh, uh, has some some responsibilities and i think a lot of legitimacy has been given to taliban including uh you know the the, the u.s taliban agreement has been very very uh, favorable to 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 the taliban 
But I don't know uh, exactly what Pakistan would want out of this. It wants an Afghanistan that it can manage. Mm. Right? And a stable Afghanistan is not an Afghanistan that it can manage. Yeah. So that's ultimately its problem. Uh, probably a ta- uh, an Afghanistan that is ruled by the Taliban. Maybe it, it can manage that. Well, I mean, that's what Pakistan thinks, but the Taliban didn't do much for the Pakistanis either, right? The Pakistanis didn't get the Durand line from the Taliban. But the Taliban did give the Pakistanis a huge benefit, which was it kept the Indians restricted to places that are not sensitive, right? It it kept, when the Taliban were in place, the Indians could only operate in the Panjshir. Mm. So that was, from the Pakistani point of view, an adequate recompense in exchange for its support, was keeping the Indians out of Afghanistan. Mm. That has largely been a Pakistani objective for many, many decades. And it sits on top of Pakistan's own problems with Afghanistan over the Durand line, for example. And waters. And, and other oh, yeah. And of course, waters. There's so many other issues, right? So people who reduce the Pakistan conflict merely to Afghanistan, merely to India, are missing the big picture because there's a legitimate Pakistan-Afghan dispute. And I don't think Afghanistan helps itself on the Durand line. You know, the Durand line position that Afghans take is not supported by international law. It, does more harm to Afghans than it does good. Um, So there is that legitimate dispute, but what gets layered on top of it is this notion that that India can take advantage of Afghan hostility to Pakistan to make Pakistan's life more problematic in areas like Balochistan, Fatah, and Khyber Pakhtunkhwa, and that it will do so collaboratively with Afghanistan, right? You'll recall, Dowd was very aggressive in supporting non-state actors in Balochistan and WFP and Fatah. Mm. And that had nothing to do with India, right? And that's actually why Zulfikar Ali Bhutto, in 1973, long before the U.S. cared, um, actually formulated the ISI cell to begin covert operations in Afghanistan as Islamists fled Dawood's oppression into Pakistan. So Pakistan began this jihadi nonsense uh, in 1973, and it did it on its own meager budget. And a number of Pakistanis have written as such. Um, Abdul Sattar, he has written this in his own account of Pakistan foreign policy. People forget that Pakistan had its own issues with Afghanistan that were quite quite separate from its dispute with India. But mm. what really happens right after 1971 is what after the Indians sign the friendship treaty with Moscow and then uh, inserts itself into the insurgency in East Pakistan, which will give rise to an independent Bangladesh, thanks to India's intervention. The Indian and the Russian threat to Pakistan become intertwined, Mm. right? So India and the Soviet Union have this interchangeable quality to them. Um, And so that's why I think in the 70s, 
Pakistan begins to see Afghan interference in Pakistani affairs is having increasing contents of Indian collusion. Mm-hmm. That yeah. Sense. Well, I hope that uh, they talk it out between themselves, you know, India, <laughs> Pakistan. Because <laughs> uh, so they had issues with the Soviet Union, uh, you know, being uh, scared of the Red Army walking on the streets of Islamabad and Lahore and trying to go to Karachi to reach the warm yeah. waters of the Indian Ocean. Uh, uh, but at the end of the day, today they're they're doing joint military exercises with the Russians. Oh, I know, which yeah. is giving the Indians some pause as well. Now, of course, I mean, the reason for that, right, is the Indian-U.S. relationship. Yeah. Right. They, they, so at the moment, I, I, I think Pakistan is like, in this desperate situation where it's trying to be friends with everybody from Turkey to Russia to China? Um, Well, not just everybody. Um, Basically, terrible regimes. (laughs) Yeah. To be completely blunt. (laughs) Yeah. The best way to end this uh, episode was that laughter. So thank you very much for tuning in. Have a good day and have a good night wherever you are.